episode 45 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with James Witts. James is the author of the book, Training Secrets of the World's Greatest Footballers. He came on to talk about the reasons why he wrote the book, also his uh, biggest revelations and findings along the way, speaking to all the different practitioners that were in the book, and also the standout practitioners that are making the biggest impact within the game. So it's great to have James on and talk about it. Um, I've seen the book on social media. A number of different people have been reading it and giving great reviews on it. Um, And he also mentions in the show where you can go and get it. So keep an eye out for that. So thank you to James for his time. Please, if you haven't done so already, head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review and enjoy the episode with James. Welcome to episode 45 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by James Witts. James is the author of the book, Training Secrets of the World's Greatest Footballers. So first of all, James, thank you very much for your time and coming on to speak to me. Uh, no, thanks for, thanks for having me on, Ben. I'm glad we got over the, uh, the technical issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just uh, for all the listeners, the technical issues resulted in the old school, turn it off, turn it on, and then it was sorted. <laughs> see there's a place for old school in this modern world isn't there <laughs> <laughs> definitely no i really appreciate appreciate your time mate. i know um a lot of the a lot of the listeners would have seen the book um and i'm really interested to talk about where it came from some of your biggest takeaways um but we'll go into all that in a second let's let's kick us off with you so your background um, take us up to uh, the book, basically, what, where that came about from. Okay, okay. Well, I guess we might as well rewind to my um, my academic sort of life many, many years ago, too long ago now. I, I had a sort of slightly unusual degree where basically I enjoyed reading, writing and sport. So I did English literature and sports science joint degree down in Worcester. And from there, basically, I ended up in publishing. So I edited a triathlon magazine, did that for 10, 12 years, went freelance because uh, basically my ego said that I felt I could write better than a lot of people asked commissioning to write for me. And uh, a lot of my features were for cycling. Obviously, cycling is possibly synonymous with like marginal gains in the application of sports science. So I basically, I have an interest in that myself, obviously, academically. And personally, so a lot of my features for consumer magazines were around that area. And then Bloomsbury Publishing approached me and asked if I had any any book ideas. And um, I sort of uh, I jumped on the marginal gains bandwagon, really. I was doing a lot of magazine features like that. Uh, I had a good access with the teams. So I wrote a book on that, and that was called The Science of the Tour de France, and that came out in 2016. Now, that did... Well, uh, I mean, I, I'm not as wealthy as J.K. Rowling, unfortunately, but it did okay. And well, and well enough that Bloomsbury were keen for me to suggest any other ideas. Now, personally, football's always been my my big passion. Uh, sadly, that that passion didn't reflect itself in the uh, the twinkle toes of my my feet. But <laughs> I, I've always always loved football, so I looked around and you know I did notice that. Even the club I support, Bristol Rovers, had a sort of, uh, whether you would say a sports science department, but at least, you know, uh, members of staff who had a sort of sports science moniker thrown in. So I looked around and obviously looking at, you know, the the top clubs, 
uh, you suddenly became aware that actually sports science has has really sort of um, integrated into football now. And I must admit, part of me sort of I, I was thinking where well, it was that sort of old school, you know, tribal hundred percent. I still felt football was slightly buried in the past, and it became clear to me that actually no, that you know that this is a growing area. So I pitched that to Bloomsbury. They were happy, and then the uh, the trauma of putting the book together began. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what was the process from there then? So, it, obviously, the the guys that haven't seen the book, there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of um, different practitioners mentioned in the book as well, and I'm sure you can go into some of the guys that um, you came in contact with. So, what was the process from there, from getting the idea to suddenly getting it onto paper? Okay, well, I guess actually I should just um, throw in the fact that with the cycling one, and it was the same with the football, I felt there was a a gap in the market for sort of sports science, um, but hopefully trying to make it more accessible, trying to hit hit more of a mass market, I guess. So as well as there are some great cycling and football science books, obviously Tony Strubwick's is probably the the one of the leading ones in football and Jens Bangsbo, if that's how he pronounced his name, many years yeah. ago. Uh, to me, they still felt quite academic or very, very much aimed at practitioners, which clearly serves a purpose and clearly is very good uh, for, for many members of the, in this case, the football community. But um, I was hoping to make it a bit more accessible. And one way of doing that really is, you know, speaking to the professionals, keep it in third person. So you're having perhaps a more friendly narrative, but then marrying it with my own research into journals. So the journal side, that was easy enough, I guess, you know, if, if you've got a deep pockets, which I haven't, but, you know, looking around and, um, you know, I've done a lot of research that side. The, the bigger hurdle was basically speaking to the experts especially the ones who are directly involved with the leading, you know, so-called leading clubs uh, at the time. So there was basically, you know, going through the websites, looking for press officers uh, and then basically saying, I want to, for example, you know, speak to Sam Erif over at Manchester City or, you know, I, when he was there, I wanted to speak to sort of Robin Forbe, who was heading that recovery and regeneration over at Man United. And that that was quite a, a laborious process, I guess, because at the end of the day, with the cycling one, I had, you know, more of a contact book. So, you know, I've been on training camps with quite a few of these teams, you know, I've met them at races, so it was easier to get in. With the football, I've, I've written for 442 a couple of times, but, you know, I've, the cycling, triathlon, endurance side has always been, you know, pretty busy. So I haven't really had the time to push that side. So, yes, it was a bit of a blank canvas. So there was a lot of, you know, pleading, a lot of uh, please, I love your club. You're the most <laughs> progressive sports science outfit I've ever seen. And they were actually, you know, they they were more receptive in the end than I thought they would be. I think part of the reasoning is I never went after, you know, the 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 managers, you know, the, the players. I, I I didn't feel uh I needed to and, and necessarily wanted to with this book because I wanted to see what you know, the work of, you know, the the sports science teams were doing. 
and I think that probably helped in a way just to get access. And I think also the fact that I'd written the other book. I mean, they'd never seen the other book. So for all they know, um, it could have been the worst book <laughs> ever written. But, you know, I, I, you know, whether it's, you know, how much worth there is behind it, I think it gives you a certain gravitas without sounding egotistical you know if, if you've done something in the, the similar area so yeah in the first instance it was press officers clubs and then you'd speak to the individuals and then it becomes you know sort of like a network doesn't it Lincoln saying oh if you want to know more about compression socks speak to da 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 you know ice baths you know have a word with him um so yeah that was the basis really yeah it's interesting because uh, like we're all for like the big part of football fitness federation we run the network meetings and we're a, um, a big philosophy of ours is sharing information and um putting information out there and being quite open with it with our work and i think and this is a very broad statement but traditionally with football a lot of a lot of clubs have sort of kept it in they thought yeah. they've they might have the sort of secret recipe so i think in the past it had been harder to get clubs to share things but i think it's great to hear that especially the top clubs are willing to speak to you and put information out there. I think that's really, really good to hear and quite progressive. Yeah, I was uh, I was surprised at that. I mean, you you've got to be quite flexible as well. Sort of, you know, I hit a, a hit a dead end dead end with a couple clubs, and then through a bit of you know email guesswork, you sort of sidestep the press officer and then go direct to source. But yeah, I was very surprised. You know, Man City you know, Sam was great. Um, and uh, forgive me, I can't remember Sam's official title. It's uh, uh, like head of head of performance or head of sports science, but I'm sure your listeners are sort of many of them are aware of Sam. He's a, uh, he's, he's one of Cornwall's finest football in exports. <laughs> I think a key, a key member of Pep's, <laughs> Pep's staff. And, um, he was great. He, I, I went there, um, it was late August. And I think that, lunchtime they were flying down to Bournemouth um which I thought has shown how football has changed really getting a you know a plane down from Manchester <laughs> to Bournemouth um but um yeah he he was great he gave us hour hour and a half of his time showed us round you know the the facilities which you know were were mind-blowing really I think for anyone who's who's seen them um and yeah I was I was pleasantly surprised that they were so accessible. Um, Liverpool as well. The head of nutrition, Mona Nima or Mona Neymar. Uh, forgive me, Mona. I always forget how to pronounce your surname. But uh, she was she was great. She really she really doesn't grant interviews. I think she's done an interview with Rory Smith, uh, who he pops up on Five Live a lot. But I think he's a regular on the New York Times, although he's based in this country. I think. And um, I think she'd seen the cycling book and so she was happy and keen to talk. And it was fascinating actually at Liverpool, sort of the nutrition side, just, you know, the lengths and, you know, depth she goes to to get the players, you know, that these lean, uh, mean sort of European championships win, winning machines, you know, and saying how, um, you know, Liverpool have even got an allotment apparently up there that, you know that they certainly uh sort of feeding spectators and players so yeah they they were far more accessible and um quite kind really that's to help me with the book 
So as a as a very broad question, James, I think it'd be uh, really good to get your opinion on some of your biggest takeaways. So I know you've mentioned a, a couple of people there and a couple of things that have sprung out to you, but if you could mention maybe three of, the, of your top takeaways from from the book um, and maybe realizations or discoveries on what you see clubs do, what would they be? Okay, I I guess one of the key takeaways or at least points of interest was there's a chapter on the academies basically or nurturing youth footballers and I spent a lot of time down at Southampton who have obviously uh, you know acclaimed for their strong academy and focus on youth and it was this the 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 theory of that early and late maturers and and making it to the the senior level and I I must admit you know, it's not sort of an issue that we particularly touched upon in cycling too much, which is strange, really, because, again, you're you're still making decisions over a, a young sportsman's life quite early. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. Just it's it's still such a so such a difference between how many early maturers make it as senior professionals and and late maturers. And I thought this this idea of biobanding seemed um, a positive one. I went over to University of Bath and talked to Sean Cummings. Uh, he's he's sort of a, a key figure, I think, in trying to push the biobanding and basing tournaments on biological age rather than chronological age. And I thought that was uh, sort of a key takeaway, really, especially as I've got a 15-year-old son, is, you know, it's, it's, it's trying not to write sort of youngsters off too soon which I know is easy for me to say as a freelance writer based in Bristol and not a member of a a club whose (laughs) obviously career depends on it but you know I've seen it in my son's level of football you know it's not you know anywhere near the academy level but you do see lads even in his team who are just like absolute bulls when they're 12 13 kick the ball past defenders, storm through. You know, lovely lads, but now it's sort of their 15, 16. That started to level level up more. And, um, you know, you, you could see now some of the other players are just starting to shine a bit more, the, the talented, skillful players. So I, I thought that idea of biobanding, trying to balance out, you know, the, the, the physical side and focus more on the tactical and skill was a... a an interesting one. I also thought the recovery was very interesting again. And I I do apologize to keep harping on about cycling, but you know, in events like the tour de France where they're, they're racing 4,000 kilometers over three weeks and, you know, might be climbing 5,000 meters in one day. There's a very clear focus. That recovery is important because it's on a daily basis and you've got to get the riders ready the next day. I didn't realize you know, the the lengths they go to in football as well. And, you know, again, ideas, um, I'm sure, you know, the, how, how much your readers might know, but I certainly know from the work I've done before, things like ice baths and, well, which I know, I know there's dispute of ice baths and whether it could hamper adaptation, but uh, with compression socks, you know, just things like protein shakes, but how much, how much focus there does seem to be on, on that aspect and obviously tied in with the sleep as well. Um, speaking to little, little Hayes, I think who seems to be Mr. Sleep <laughs> essentially. He's, I think there's two. Li- 
What's that? We've had him on the podcast, Nick. Oh, have you? Uh, okay, yeah, he's he's a nice nice chap, isn't he, Nick? He's um, I think there are two Nicks because he seems to have been associated with every top club, whether it's football, <laughs> cycling, rugby. <laughs> but but that was I thought that was very interesting, and especially like if you're playing over in Spain, where you know it's obviously later kickoffs, um, and you might be finishing you know late on, and actually the time the adrenaline's worn off you've gone through social media and and the like and some players might not be getting to sleep till 5 a.m which you know you think well actually we all know what we're like after a a bad night's sleep it doesn't particularly you don't feel overly productive do you so I think just some of the measures that the clubs are going to to make sure ultimately without being too crude their assets are sort of ready to peak for the next game uh, I thought that was that was very interesting and uh, to be fair, I think one of the, the most interesting chapters sort of researched and um, wrote, and hopefully it came over, was the lengths that the clubs go to to ensure their pitches are in absolutely perfect condition. And um, I mean, Ben, you look you look far younger and more handsome than um, the the elder statesman here. But um, I, you know, I remember watching like the match in the eighties on ITV and the, the, the pitches were just absolute quagmires over the winter period, whether that was, you know, then main road or even, you know, Old Trafford. And now you just don't get that, do you, you know, especially sort of in the, the premier and just, I think the introduction of like Deso grass and these light rigs, which went down to Bristol City, which um, unnerved me because I am a Bristol Rovers fan. So, you know, I I, I put behind the enemy lines. Sorry, behind enemy lines. I know, I know. I did feel um, yes, slightly nauseous after the experience, but <laughs> I've had counsel and it's all fine. We've leveled things out. <laughs> but no, they were great. I think it was a chap called he's the head groundsman, uh, Dan Sparks. I think it is. And he was just saying the lengths they go to and they've got the lighting rigs. I think they had four of them, four or six, but he was saying that I think each one cost like a hundred thousand pounds and, you know, many thousand pounds to run each month. And you, you just see like, and then how that interacts with the stadium and how the stadium design might, you know, allow wind to flow and light to flow or might not, as in the San Siro years ago where they seem to be turfing up their pitch sort of every three or four matches. Um, so, yeah, I thought just the, the lengths and efforts they go to, it just, it, you know, it realised actually they're bringing experts in, not necessarily, you know, just people who are keen on football from every area, you know, the sort of institutes of groundsmanship I think I even spoke to so yeah I think they were probably three of the sort of the key areas which I thought actually that is really progressive and you can see how that all you know ends up on that fight you know on Saturday at 3 p.m for the the final product as it was <clears throat> yeah and uh, it is fascinating and it's funny because some of the stuff you've mentioned there especially down at Southampton um, we had Sam Scott on the podcast. I was, I was trying to check as you were speaking and what episode it was. I think it's episode 41. So the guys can go back and have a listen to that. And um, we had Sam on. He spoke about um, what they do with the academy. We had um, the guys on from Bournemouth, David Johnson. He spoke about biobanding. And I think that is a really fascinating area. 
Um, obviously, as well with Nick Nick Little Hales, um, he spoke about sleep and the importance of sleep and some of it, his experience. Um, so it's great to, to see that your takeaways are similar to what the, the clubs are focusing on at the moment and what we focused on with the podcast. And it's you spoke about marginal gains, I think, a little bit before. Yeah, and yeah. that's exactly what clubs are trying to do now, isn't it? They're trying to focus on these areas that they can that they can focus on it and um, optimise to, yeah. like you said it before, to, to affect what happens on a Saturday at three o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, uh, there's probably a separate book in it, but I, you know, I think part of these marginal gains as well. Yes, there's a there is a physical, you know, impact. You know. Uh, the studies have shown it, although obviously some like say compression socks, there's still a certain, you know, it's not totally equivocal, but so many use them that I think that's probably a clear one that, you know, that obviously the impact of the mind and, and the issue of placebo. And I think especially in this day and age where, like you said, the marginal gains is so important. I think the clubs who especially can afford it, that I think if they can just tick the boxes that, okay, yeah, we might be getting a bit of a physical, you know, improvement here. But I think from a player's point of view, I can imagine that they're like, okay, yeah, we've, we've, you know, ticked every box here that, you know, mentally, you know, you're going to be in a good place, aren't you? If, if you're looking over your, your shoulder at the team across the, the, the city, you know, say, you know, Man City to Man United and they're doing stuff which you think is, hang on, why aren't we doing that? That looks progressive. Then, um, you know, you mentally you're on the back foot. But yeah, clubs, they do seem to um, be throwing so much resource at it if they can. Anyway, I think it's, um, I think Mo Gimple, I think is the head of performance science down at Southampton. And he was great. As I say in the book, he, he most stood tall while many managers have fallen around him. I mean, he's been there for years and years, um, far you know, uh, far longer than since Southampton have got the Staplewood campus down there, amazing facilities um, down there. But he he was he was great, Mo, because he said you know that although they got far more resources than a lot of clubs, they won't haphazardly throw money at stuff. So I think at the moment there, I think they might have even sought someone to do a PhD on it. I could be wrong there, Ben, but looking into cryotherapy chambers okay. and actually, you know, again, I think the, the evidence behind those isn't totally, you know, saying, well, th this works. But obviously so many clubs have them now and I know Man City have them, whereas Southampton, I think they they seem very keen that, yeah, if if an idea looks like there's worth to it, they try and do their own research as well. Um, so not only to hopefully then utilize it down the line, but provide an individualized approach, you know, so a lad whose muscle mass, you know, might be gone knows how much, you know, or compared to a really, you know, skinny sort of athlete. I mean, you, you, you know, it's slightly different, obviously in football, everyone's relatively muscular these days, you know, they're, their response to cryotherapy might be different or might be different in ice baths just because of the nature of muscle fibers and fast twitch and slow twitch. So yeah, I was, um, I was mightily impressed uh, with many clubs, but yeah, I think Southampton, I was uh, particularly um, yeah impressed, impressed by just their sort of pragmatic use. 
because I think it's quite easy to see the next big thing, isn't it? And, you know, ultimately a lot of people coming to clubs, I guess, have their sales hats on. So it, it's wading through the product and also wading through journals, I think, isn't it? And seeing, well, that's great in the lab, but what about on a Saturday afternoon, you know, when you've got 30,000 fans and you haven't got a controlled environment, is that really going to work then? So, yeah, I was not only impressed by the fact marginal gains are being implemented, but, you know, the, the actual intelligent use of those marginal gains. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I mean, Southampton speaks for itself in terms of the players that it's um, that have come out of its academy and the success they've had over the years. And it's it's great to hear and obviously see in your case the, the good work that's going on. Um one thing I wanted to ask you is, and it's something that I've asked a few coaches recently on the podcast, is where they see sports science, strength conditioning, football fitness, physical development, whatever you want to call it, going over the next few years. And is this something that you spoke about um, with coaches, where, where they sort of see things progressing um, and what their views were on it, if, if there were any? Well, I think one of the key... Um areas for growth and I'm, I'm stealing this this off Reese Carr to be fair who um, I'm sure you know sort of Reese, who's uh, I think he's just got a job at Sheffield United by the look yeah, of it and, has, yeah. which is uh, which is great news for Reese. obviously you know for listeners who don't know Reese was down at Bristol City for for many years and runs the soccer science conference up in Manchester now I was I was up in Manchester for this year's conference and Reese was on about really the sort of this individualized sort of training I think and really focusing on the individual and I guess mastering that sort of balance of improving the individual but you know trying to do it in a team environment which is a pretty hard balancing act but I think I I can see that being an area of growth um again back to cycling I mean one of the reasons team Ineos formerly team Sky I think have done so well uh, is that you know it, it, instead of say paying a rider a million a year, they might pay them I don't know nine hundred nine fifty thousand a year, and then bring in a top coach to work beside them. So that allocation of resources, they're like, well, this this will pay off far more than just you know a coach will be teaching six or seven, for example. And yeah, I can see that um, happening more and more in football. Uh, I, I guess a few more uh, ideas I touch upon in the the book are, um, you know, it's been around for a few years, uh, like the DNA testing and training based on genetics, which after speaking to several geneticists, uh, a chap called Professor Yanis Pitsilardis, which I probably again pronounced Yanis, um, his name completely wrong, but he's based down at the University of Brighton. And he's involved, or one of the many hats he wears, uh, he, he works for WADA, but also trying to break the two-hour marathon record. Um, I'm not sure if he's involved in the one in October, but a separate record. Uh, but, yeah, I think he's he certainly feels the area isn't mature enough yet to be, you know, reach a stage where you can start guiding people too much on, you know, their genetics. But, you know, you can see that it only being a matter of time 
you know, as knowledge builds and they work out the interaction of genes more and then it becomes maybe more focused on an exercise, you know, realm than it might do at the moment, which I guess is probably more health-based. Um, I can see that having an impact. And then you get the, um, which I, I completely demean it, I'm sure, but sort of the, the slightly Frankenstein one, which this transcranial direct stimulation, which I don't know if you've seen a product called Halo, and how, how many of your listeners are aware of this side of things, which basically it's like a pair of headphones and it's commercial. It's out on the market now and it, you put on the headphones and it sends a, hopefully a low current <laughs> through your, your brain. I mean, it's not too, too severe. I don't know if it's one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of a wavelength, but it's, um, you know, there's, there's much research into that at the moment where uh, that can improve endurance or actually, um, a sort of a, increase the open window to um, improve your skill base. So I did speak to this chap uh, when I was in France. He was a Portuguese doctor and he actually uses transcranial direct stimulation and he said he has used it on a couple of footballers. So you would, you know, Ben, you might put it on now for 20 minutes, nip out into your garden, do a load of keepy-ups and your record might have been 100 and, you know, theoretically it'll move up to 105 <laughs> but <laughs> so to me that you know that does sound slightly frankenstein and sl- slightly outlandish but i know there's a lot of research going into that at the moment so yeah that could be another sort of area which you know might be uh, played out in carrington and also actually virtual reality sort of tied in with this future proofing uh spoke to the guys at my heaper is on my my yeah resil and the and the etches that's it yeah yeah so, yeah so spoke to andy i don't know if you've had those guys on your um podcast friend but they they've i mean it's very interesting sort of ideas down there and i had a go myself and i'm not a huge fan historically of virtual reality i mean i'm i get a bit queasy on a roller coaster so this is uh <laughs> you know with with that on I, I was certainly in the motion sickness sort of camp but actually i didn't have any problems with uh their their unit and um i was really impressed and you could you could see sort of there are so many different facets to it whether it's building school uh, skill you know improving skill base coming back from recovery where obviously you know you're, you're not bearing as much weight as as before but also tactically and he was saying how you know you could you know a game could finish you could lose one nil in the last minute uh they could you know Jurgen Klopp could send that video to these guys they put it through their software turn it into you know a, a virtual situation and then it will be you know they're at Anfield they'll put on the VR unit and you can replay within like an hour or something, I think, uh, this, you know, the real life move that broke them down in this virtual world. But then you can move around so you can look at different angles or, you, you know, so you can be there and say, well, actually, you know, Trent, if you haven't been so lazy and you cut in and run back, <laughs> you know, you would have stopped Marcus Rashford from storming through and scoring. So it's, I guess it's just that next level of immersion um, you know, to uh, to improve the players, I guess. So, yeah, many ideas. How many will gain traction? Watch this space, I guess. But I know they have got virtual reality suites over at Manchester United now and um, at Juve, uh, to name but two. So, 
you know, certainly professional clubs are looking into it. Yeah, the VR stuff's fascinating. We've had Andy on the podcast and, and I've spoke to Andy quite a few times and I think um, probably looking from the outside and I was I was a bit apprehensive about it before actually trying it um, yeah. and speaking to Andy. But once you've actually used the unit and you speak to the guys about the actual research that's going into it and also some of the things that are coming out of it, I think it's fascinating. And I, I can honestly see in a few years' time that's going to be a big part this is obviously just my opinion but I think that's going to be a big part of how our cl- clubs prepare um, the work they're doing is amazing uh, I do recommend I always say that to go and try it I know the guys over there they're more than happy for people to go and give it a go so um, contact Andy contact Rezel the guys will, will let you have a go on it and you can experience it um, but yeah it's, it's good to hear that that was something that you experienced as well yeah absolutely and, and I think you're right I mean it's you know that I, I remember, you know, I grew up with a, a Spectrum and a Commodore Amiga. So, you know, I, I had a sort of <laughs> a computer-based youth to a degree, whereas, you know, obviously things have just accelerated hugely since then. And, you know, you've got these uh, digital natives, I think they're called now, whereas I think I was a digital immigrant, sadly. But <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you could, but you can see it being... You know, if you're trying to coach these youngsters, they'll get it, won't they? I mean, especially I think once the R units have ironed out the motion sickness issue, which I think is happening. I think it's taken longer than they would have liked, but it'll get there because I think the will is there, and probably more importantly, the money is there. And, and yeah, I think those guys have, uh, have done very well. And um, yeah, good luck to them. Yeah, definitely. And and another thing I wanted to ask was: was there anything? when you were going through the book and collecting all the information that really stood out as like a shock or a surprise? A shock or a surprise? Oh, now that is a, that's a, a very good question. Well, I mean, it, it did keep coming back that, you know, players really just don't drink alcohol now, which I mean, sort of, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I really would have been shocked, but, um, I, do you know, I guess maybe shock probably would be too too strong a word. A, a lot of what I learned was a mild surprise, again, because of that backdrop of I've been quite immersed in cycling and sort of sports science for years. So although I loved football, I probably didn't have awareness of just how much sports science impacts um, football these days. So I, I, I think just, many things just there was a simmering of sort of you know sports science sort of like using altitude mass for recovery you know underwater treadmills um admittedly most of these at the top clubs like man city um but i think even down the lower leagues you know just even with things like the catapult units or stat sport just you know it's omnipresent now isn't it throughout every single sort of league is just these lads wearing their their little grey vests or black vests, and and just how much they're sort of monitored. Uh, and I guess that was a surprise. It did, yeah. It, it I didn't realise it stretched for so so far and so wide. This I guess accountability. I know it is improving performance as well, but I think it's you know there's obviously a, I, if you're paying a player. God knows how much each week. There's a certain accountability there, you know, and ultimately it's a business and you want your 
you know, you want your employees to be accountable. Um, but yeah, I think there was a, yeah, just a general, um, generally impressed to be honest, Ben, of just how, how receptive clubs were to sports science. Cause it, I think football, and that's part of the aim of the book, really. It's hopefully it, you know, it'll appeal to, um, you know, guys and ladies who are in the industry, but I'm hoping that, you know, the regular football supporter who, you know, might look beyond, you know, the, the pie at halftime or, you know, it just it has a little bit more interest of, okay, where, where's this coming from? I think there's some really good books, obviously by Jonathan Wilson on, on tactics and his inverting the pyramid, I think it was called, but um, I don't think there was too much out there on like the physical conditioning side and what goes into that and the mental side. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully people, uh, yeah, be, uh, find a few things in, in the book that will pique their interest and it doesn't necessarily need to apply to their own performance. I mean, it's, you know, just hopefully in a vicarious way and then appreciate really, you know, what you guys and the, the support staff do to help these first team players perform to their peak for God knows how many games each season. And just finally, one thing, and you don't necessarily have to answer this question if you don't want, but I think it's um, it'll be a nice time to give a few people a little shout out and a bit of praise for the work they're doing. But who are some of the practitioners that stood out for you that you feel are, are really making an impact? And I know that a lot, obviously a lot of the guys are, and you've mentioned a lot of names already, but was there anyone in particular or a few in particular that really stood out for you? Well, I was, I was very impressed with... Uh, Aaron, Aaron Harris, I think it was, a, and I think Aaron's actually just, he was at Spurs and sort of um, high up in their academy and had been there for years. So I remember speaking to Aaron over at Spurs' training ground, and I think he's actually just moved to QPR in the pre-season. But I was very impressed with Aaron and his managing of just the youngsters there and, you know, um, just how much care he was taking of them. He, he seemed to have a very good attitude of, you know, he, he had this, the scientific side, but he was clearly had worked with youngsters for years and years. So he had a very, you know, he was a very good communicator, I think. So Aaron Harris, definitely. I mentioned Mo Gimple. I mean, Mo was um, a bit of a star, really, Ben, to sort of help the book because he kick-started things, really. I went down to Staplewood two or three times and, you know, it, it, it can be a bit of a daunting journey if it's, uh, you know, if you haven't got the contacts there. And actually, Mo, so he gave us the knowledge, but also the confidence to sort of push on. Robin Thorpe, he was at United, but I think he's actually moved as as well over to America yeah. now. But um, gone to, Is it Altis he's gone to? Yes, I think that's it. Yeah, again, is you know a lot of these people. I speak to them, and then they they leave their jobs, which you'd think they'd wait until the book came out, wouldn't you? But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I don't thank any of them, the swines. But no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say that they're sort of the the key ones. I there were guys over, and I forget the names, but I went over to Barcelona. Um, and interviewed quite a few people over there. There was a football medicine conference. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, I think generally just sort of the, the, the clubs who are happy sort of to give 
to give their time for the the book. Uh, oh, James Morton as well. Actually, he used to be at Liverpool. Again, I think he's at Team Ineos now. But he was, um, yes, a, a fountain of, of knowledge as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm missing out loads. But there were many practitioners who I was very impressed by, um, who happily gave us their their time and um, and their knowledge. Yeah, and I know it was always going to be a hard question with the amount of people that you spoke to and. Uh, anyone that's seen the book will realize the amount of practitioners and the amount of work that's gone into it so i appreciate that you're not able to mention everyone but um it's great for you to pick out a few people there that that people can sort of go and see the work that they do and the work that they put out yeah, um, yeah. james what's the what's the future for you what's the next steps what are you what are you going to be up to uh me well i'll probably just revel in and all the money when the commissions come in and you know the royalties I'll be sitting in my bath of milk, you know, my wife feeding me grapes. Um, but, <laughs> but sadly, when I've got off my, um, you know, my Nick Little Haze sleep topper and woken up. <laughs> um, I'm, so basically, like my day job is I do a lot of writing still for consumer magazines. So again, sort of cycling, uh, still heavily into Bloomsbury of sort of um, looking for further ideas. So whether I continue, I'm, I'm very keen to push sort of the football side. I mean, it's it's a heavily populated market, obviously, whether it's practitioners, players, but also in the media as well. Um, so whether I can push that side. I also think there's probably a gap in the market um, for a similarly styled book that I've done with the cycling football one in like running. I think running with like the sub two hour marathon and, you know, it's um, running, although it's such an easy activity, I think people are getting again more interested in the application of sort of sports science and these, these little gains. And the thing is, these little gains, they don't have to cost the world, do they? You know, where it can be a dietary tweak or, you know, a timing of your training or, you know, simple stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, the work schedule is pretty busy at the moment which is good because i'm freelance so you know but december onwards i'm taking bookings you know <laughs> anything really <laughs> but yeah hopefully to the football side because i've got a real interest in that so we'll, we'll see where it goes no that'll be great and uh, we'll keep an eye out for uh, any future resources that, uh, that come out so more importantly where's the best place to follow you and to follow your work but also where can the guys go and get the book Okay, well, I'm 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 on Twitter. Uh, my I think my Twitter handle, which uh, is very poor, I should know this uh, in this day and age, but it's James R. Wits. So I'm relatively active on Twitter. Re- regarding the actual book, uh, it's in all all good bookshops, as they say. I mean, Waterstones, it's in there. You can get it by Bloomsbury. It'll be on Amazon. Uh, it's it's sixteen ninety nine. Although I'm sure you can find it reduced online <laughs> but yeah it's um but yeah if it, it should be in your local waterstones if it's not maybe drop me a, a tweet and i'll um i'll give bloomsbury a a nudge um but yeah so there, there's various outlets so hopefully it's easy for people to access and hopefully if they're kind enough to to buy it they they enjoy it and get something out of it and do you want to just repeat the full title james so people can search for it yeah it's training secrets of the world's greatest footballers and the byline is how science is transforming the modern game 
Awesome, mate. Well, we've got, at the time of this podcast going out, I'm hoping that our review of the book will be on our website so the guys can go and check that out. Um, we'll also put a link to the book on the blog and also on the podcast as well. Um, so it should be easy enough for people to find um, to go and get it. But I just want to say massive thank you for, well, first of all, for, for doing the book. I think it's a, a really great resource that's out there for practitioners to to go and have a look through. And I know the, uh, just speaking to you now about the amount of people and the amount of travel that you've done, um, speak, um, speaking to different practitioners at different clubs all around the country and not just the country, but in different different countries as well. So a massive thank you for you for putting that out, but also for coming on the podcast. Um, and talking about it, I think it's great to hear your takeaways um, and everything that you spoke about there. So thank you very much. Uh, no, thank you, Ben. And um, yeah, I appreciate your time. It's been great. Yeah, awesome, mate. Well, um, we'll catch up soon, James. And um, yeah, any feedback we get, we'll pass it over. Brilliant. Much appreciated. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed the episode with James. It was great to speak to him about all the reasons behind writing the book and his biggest revelations. I think some of the standouts for me were where he talked about just the quality work that goes on in football. I think people involved in football obviously know what goes on behind the scenes, but people that aren't involved in it, when they actually look and see the um, the volume of work and the quality of work that goes on behind the scenes, I think they're, they're impressed. And I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on on social media, a lot of infighting, a lot of calling people out. And I think we need to stand back sometimes and realise that there is some absolutely quality work going on and we need to appreciate that and um, voice our views on that a little bit more. He also spoke about the future. Um, So one question was where he sees the future and what the feedback was. And he mentioned VR. So we obviously did the episode with Andy Etches on the podcast. Um, It's a really interesting area and it'd be great to see how that develops over the next few years. And then also where he talks about the standout practitioners and he mentioned a few names, um, Aaron Harris, Mo Gimple, Robin Thorpe, James Morton. He also mentioned Reese Carr, some really quality practitioners. And I know there's more than that in the book as well. And I put him on the spot a little bit, trying to mention just a few names. And I, I know that he wanted to speak about everyone, but um, yeah, there's some people making real good strides forward in the industry. So it was great to hear who he thought was um, pushing the standards up and um, get his views on that. So a big thank you to James for coming on. Uh, you can go and follow him on Twitter and obviously you can go and get the book at the places that he mentioned in the episode. Big thank you again for listening to the show. and um, We'll be back again next week for another episode and we'll speak to you then.